What is what has been the most illuminating thing about teaching kids? Putting on the spot with the heavy, hard questions. You know, I early. knew you were going to ask me Wait, something along those lines today. Why? And I thought about it over the last three days. I'm, I'm slowly becoming very predictable. Say, but I actually still, despite thinking about it, don't have a very good answer or just haven't reached the point of having illumination. Okay. I'll check I'll, back. I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you. All I can say right now for folks who wonder is that it has been a positive experience and I will not be quitting before the term ends. <laughs> <laughs> I find it really interesting because <laughs> since you are not that far removed from school, like what, when was the last time you were in a classroom environment like two years ago yeah um i finished my master's end of 2019 so that's barely two years not even two years it's gonna be interesting to see if you are holding these kids and their learning habits and their functional behaviors relative to your own habits you know what is a thing i think about a lot slash worry about is impact of individual teachers on students and I think this is true, not just in an academic situation, but let's say you have a coach mm-hmm. in whatever sports team, or even if it's just like a personal trainer, the style that they choose is necessarily going to affect what you believe in and your values and how you train and what you think is a successful yeah. outcome. Yeah. And that's kind of mind boggling to me. But very important because if you have a good coach, it really changes your trajectory. Like I was on a pre-interview like an hour ago with this um, Olympic athlete. And I was just asking her like, how do you push through various levels of physical and mental difficulty? Right. And one of the things she said was like, oh, I had coaches that believed I could do better. And that was, you know, I might as well say it's like kind of like the, the carrot that's dangled in front of you to continue you on your forward path. Do you think it's possible for there to be many different types of good coaching styles? Yeah, because the coaching style is all dependent on the type of athlete and how they respond to stimulus. Mm -hmm. Like for me, I love it when I get berated and yelled at. Like it just like it just snaps you into place and like you're doing shit at this podcast, Eugene. Exactly. Up your game. And then the other people like don't like that at all. Because that's one thing that happens a lot in sports, right? I don't know if you can have a peaceful, calm conversation on the pitch because i think that ultimately emotion through the communication adds another level of like sharpness but then you know my coach after we had we had kind of like the small blow up at training and then our coach was like yes i know you demand a lot from each other but there's a reason why we're all playing at this level and we're not playing at another level Mm. that makes sense i mean it's tricky in a team situation which i guess the academic analogy would be when you are in the class with 20 students you can't tailor everything you say to like a specific student's mm-hmm. learning style. Unfortunately, you have to choose how you frame something and that's what everyone gets. And mm-hmm. it's only in opportunities where you're like in a one-on-one tutorial or for coaching, if you're one-on-one training, yeah. then you get to tailor the way you yeah. encourage. Like, I don't yell at people in real life, really. No. But I'll fucking yell at people playing sports. And that is why I don't play sports with Eugene. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, 
want to get each other's thoughts on. Make It Up is produced by Make In, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really, we are working through things, and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash for Discord access, exclusive newsletters, and more. Let's get into it. Okay, my subject this week is roughly about what do you do in the face of the climate crisis and how much help is technology? That's sort of a sidebar the technology aspect of it. And this came about because Eugene shared an interesting credit card concept, which you can introduce later. And I had happened to read Kai Brock's issue of Dense Discovery this week. And the intro for it was about Kai's personal approach towards what he can do with his understanding of the climate crisis, his acceptance of it. And he shared two links to two articles. One is called The Other Crisis by John Leighton, and the second one is called It's Time to Replace Ambition with Adaptation by Rosie Spinks. Mm -hmm. And so John's piece I want to start off with is a recount of his personal journey, quote, trying to make sense of the worsening ecological crisis and what it means for my life. He started thinking about this in 2007, so about 14 years ago. He got really swept up in protesting. So he was part of this UK grassroots climate change protest scene that was intense. And he truly believed that activism was the way things for the world was going to turn around. If they just got more people to protest and got caught up in the movement, then the proverbial ship would, you know, do a U-turn. And he burned out on activism and he founded a company So he kind of flipped over. He went from the activism solution to a tech solution. And he founded a company called Loco2. Mm -hmm. And now it's called Rail Europe. And it's a business that intentionally wants to make low-carbon rail travel the default alternative to high-carbon short flights. However, again, another switch in his mind. He used to really, truly believe, you know, tech was the solution. Tech was the way the world was going to avert the climate crisis and now he's not so sure is that the right way he of doesn't putting really it? say not sure he's like as much as he believes in tech it is not an absolute belief essentially those are my words like yes he thinks tech can do some things but it is not a a hundred percent fix all solution because he says and this is another quote the best solar panels and the most efficient cars won't help at all if the underlying conditions which got us into this mess remain the same. Unless we find ways to live that don't require ever more energy and resources, the clean tech will never be enough. And this is maybe a good time to re-mention that credit card because I feel like it does fall into that category of nice to have, but ultimately not futile. Yeah. Do yeah, wanna, so basically talk about what, it is? what this credit card does, and it's in its testing phases, because I think it's only available in Sweden. It's called Do, and it's just like any other 
sort of modern day credit card, very clean, minimalist uh, design. It kind of looks like an Apple card. So what it does is that upon you using this card, it will notify you of your carbon footprint based off of the purchases you made. So obviously if you, I'm making this up, like obviously with some of the worst um, violators are like cattle, right? So if you go to a steak restaurant, I'm sure it's going to be higher than if you went to a salad place. And I think it's what it aims to do is to help contextualize what your carbon footprint is and hopefully inf- help you make more informed decisions. And the reason why I found this interesting is while I agree that you simply consuming less is probably not going to be the answer, I think there's going to be a much broader shift. I, I was reminded of some stats and I, I don't think it's a perfect comparison because obviously this is a bit different, but there's this fitness tracker called Whoop. What it does, it tracks sort of your sleep, um, exercise, et cetera. And when I was on their site, just looking at it, it gave a few different stats based off of people's like usage over uh, an extended period of time. And some of them included a reduction in alcohol consumption, something like really high, like 67% less alcohol because people were starting to understand what it was doing to their body. So that's why for me, the do credit card isn't entirely futile because if you're, if you're understanding how it works, then you may be uh, making better decisions going forward. And one thing too is, I think there's a lot of things in this world that generally happen uh, in non-transparent ways, not because they're deliberately hidden so much as the system isn't set up for it to provide sufficient transparent information. I think how much energy it, it takes to, you know, use our MacBook for eight hours. You know, sure. if we surf 20 links versus we surf, you know, two links, yeah. right? We only spend five minutes on Instagram versus five hours. So none of those systems are actually set up. And one thing that I found interesting was within the realm of crypto, like most recently, like dating back to earlier in the year, there was a lot of discussion around the environmental impact of crypto, which is undeniable. However, the argument is also that like, this whole system is is transparently known in regards to how much energy is being used. And like your modern day banking system, you don't really know how much energy is being used, Instagram, all that stuff. So yeah. yes, poking a hole into the argument around crypto, but at the same time, it's only because it's showing its cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whereas but, everything else we do doesn't. And and it's also been quite interesting because I'm, I follow quite a bit uh, around the whole sort of uh, Bitcoin mining space is just like a personal interest of mine. And in some ways, like the whole energy usage of, of mining Bitcoin in itself could be almost carbon neutral, mm. right? As, as if you're using excess energy, if you're using energy from the sun, from dams, et cetera. And that's generally how it's been working in, in light of certain companies because they're using excess energy, right? So mm. I found that interesting because by virtue of you knowing this, it's incentivizing people to go and find ways to do carbon neutral uh, mining. But also because it was brought up, like no one ever brings up, oh, do you know what the environmental cost of Instagram is? And there's no numbers that tack on behind it. But now you sort of see what what the environmental impact of mining Bitcoin or any proof of work uh, cryptocurrency is. Yeah, I'm really into that. I mean, I'm I'm not I don't want to paint John Lee in as someone who's like all technology is futile. And that's definitely not what he says. He proposes that you continues to make tech advances, but also individuals shouldn't believe that the tech advance is an absolute solution. The credit card or the solar panels will not 
then make the world perfect. He mm-hmm. does say, and this is a quote, you know, the, of course, the outcome is not binary. Two degrees Celsius warming and six degrees Celsius warming are both terrible, but one is definitely more mm-hmm. terrible. Impacts are already being felt across the world, especially by the poor, but it's still important to try to avoid worse impacts in the future. Yeah. So, you know, that means it is important to use things like this credit card or to be aware of, you know, what our flight's effect is yeah. in terms of carbon emissions, but to still be accepting that there is going to be, you know, two degrees yeah. Celsius warming yeah. as opposed to six degrees Celsius warming. And what I like about the credit card is that maybe there will come a day when the carbon emissions cost is aware across the board, like it's like it's requirement. Remember how there are countries where it's required to put the nutritional value on the menus? Yeah. And that's like a big deal and like nutritional labeling. On even fast food restaurants. Because yeah. it became, because we became more educated about the impact of food on mm. the human body. And in the same way, it's a good yeah. thing if we're all increasingly aware of the impact of our actions on the planet. Most recently, and I think in the last few years, there's been more and more visibility around the carbon emissions of uh, international flights. And that actually has an effect on me. Like I used to fly a lot and now it's like setting up ways where you don't need to fly as much and or you're creating systems that allow you to still execute on a desired outcome without needing to be face to face. So it actually the transparency and even just affixing a number and a metric to an action actually, I think can be powerful because even like, you know, to use that whoop example, like I have a sleep tracker we've talked about before and like, I'm definitely checking every day to see if I got a good sleep because I want to know if I've been able to positively influence it. But, you know, I, I think there's a bit of a tangent. Our ambitions, I would say in general, are probably rooted in something innate that because it's part of human biology, it's hard for us to change that behavior. So what I think anyways is that a lot of people aspire for more because it translates to comfort and security. Mm. So the reality is that there's always going to be someone that's striving for comfort and security. So in light of not having that, they're, they're not incentivized to change their behavior. And that, that to me is going to be extremely difficult to change. It's almost as though our existence as a species, you know, I think he uses that, that number. He says that humans have been on the planet for what, 240,000 years? Yeah. Something like that out of like a 4 billion year old earth, something like that. Anyways. Yeah, he says earth formed about 4.5 billion years ago and modern humans appeared around 200,000 years ago. Essentially, he's saying that, you know, we are impermanent. Yeah, we're totally like, to th- we're just a chapter. impermanence. We're just a chapter. And, you know, once, regardless of what happens to humans, like the earth will still be in existence. It might just take another, you know, let's call it 500 million years to reset or just return to a different uh, ecological standing. But maybe it's like the stuff that was biologically innate to help us last this long was corrupted by technology. And what I mean by that is like we had a certain like innate desire for security to for existence for evolutionary and just to exist right as a species and then at some point when technology kind of fell in our laps that's when things actually went into overdrive maybe if you really broaden the scope of what technology means well i mean technology if you look at even even the role capitalism has played in influencing the trajectory of humanity right like if it wasn't for technology it wasn't for the steam engine a lot of these things 
yeah, would I have happened, even we, modern if, agriculture. If we stretch all the way back to talk about the inventions of different tools that enable. But that's theoretically not even that long ago. Like no, farming was like 10,000 years. Know, when you say technology, now people think, you know, like a certain type of technology. So I just want to be clear. We're going back in yeah, time okay. to refer to the fact that like when landowners could suddenly mass produce grain that affected the economy and people's ability to access new levels of comfort and security. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, about ambition, John Lee Inn and Rosie Spinks, the author of the other article I mentioned, both talk about that concept of, you know, exactly what you said, that humans have ambition seemingly hardwired into us, but ambition, security and comfort, something else that Rosie in particular suggests that is innate to humans, which is adaptability. And yeah. what will allow us to continue to live fruitfully is if we adapt to the future, which we know is going to involve a climate crisis. So some things that John and Rosie both suggest, they, and they're very, they're very not, um, they don't say, okay, these are the five things you can do to avoid the climate crisis. It's not structured like that. They both put forward, okay, these are the solutions that we personally have experimented with and see really affect our mental well-being in terms of accepting the state of the world and also genuinely feeling like this makes a difference. And so for Leighton, what he got really into was permaculture, which I confess I was not aware of Mm. the term prior to reading this piece. And people might be familiar with permaculture as meaning if you start your own veggie farm or if you maximize your house so that you don't have to use like central heating or air conditioning. Mm -hmm. Like those are examples of permaculture. But there's also a definition that Leighton puts forward by Meg McGowan. Quote, permaculture is an ethically based pattern for designing evolving systems that increase ecological health while providing for human needs. Which I think means is not relying on any single thing to be the fix, but to consider how does your entire lifestyle or all of the different habits that you do can be tweaked or modified or, you know, just being aware of that impact. Yeah. You know, which yeah. I'm into. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying I do it. I definitely am like it's work, right? Like it takes work to not do the most convenient thing. But is it work or is it lack of education? And when I mean lack of education, I don't mean this in a, hey. I think it's work in the sense that, I mean, it's the less convenient option. And I don't mean like work in terms of education, (sighs) but like a really simple example is like having a reusable cup that requires you to remember to bring the cup around. Do you see the stat in the New York Times that mentioned that for you to justify the use of a cotton tote bag, you need to use it 20,000 times? Oh, There's I a saw recent that stat. Yeah, some people yeah. like post it, but that's an example where, you know, a lot of people are just in, engaging in this this element of greenwashing. Uh, most recently, there was a business of fashion article that s- featured a new brand idea by I think it was a brand director, some C level guy at Adidas who wanted to create a more environmentally friendly version of like Supreme or Yeezy, but in a in the Lean Lux, which is a like another publication that focuses on modern luxury brands, I mean, they were all very on point in the Slack community. They were saying 
the world of Yeezy, the world of Supreme operates on mindless or it's the right word I'm looking for or impulse consumption, right? And that is the antithesis of sustainability and all that other stuff, right? It's not about longevity. It's about, hey, I need this for a moment in time. Yeah. And then afterwards, it's no longer relevant to me. Yeah. So the idea of making it sustainable is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction. I, I, it's yeah. an impossibility in itself. I always wonder because in Hong Kong, I think you you notice within call like a four to eight week window of a hyped sneaker dropping, there's quite a few people that are wearing them. At some point, I saw a lot of people wearing those uh, Nike Sakai's, the colorful ones. Yeah. And I was curious, like, where did they go? Like where, you know, it's been probably a year, two years, whatever. And like, I wonder where those went. And same thing with Yeezys, right? Like 350s. Like I saw a girl wearing the zebra ones today and I'm like, oh, I forgot this, but I'm, I used to see these all the time. Yeah. So. I mean, we live in Hong Kong, so we're more aware. And I mean, it's a criticism of here, but I'm sure other places are like it too. It's just a very trend oriented culture. Yeah. yeah. So I just wanted to offer at the end of Rosie Spink's piece, she writes about what adaptation in the face of climate crisis might look like for an individual. She wrote, on a personal level, this shift could take many forms. Maybe it means you focus on building social capital in your community rather than a LinkedIn or Instagram following that you downsize or move to a cheaper place and acquire less stuff so you can work less, produce more and rely less on globalized supply chains. Maybe it means reskilling and re-networking yourself in an offline sense. So you have more to offer your immediate community and vice versa. Maybe you channel your penchant for spreadsheets or publicity or social media into the climate movement, an urgent local environmental cause, or advocating for universal basic income. This requires an emotional and spiritual depth and fortitude that our culture does not encourage us to cultivate. We don't even have a language for acknowledging that we've gotten ourselves into a situation that money and hard work and ingenuity can't solve. Mm -hmm. And it is interesting because yeah, what actually, she's calling for does sound almost religious in a way. Because for people to do these things requires you to accept. I mean, I say it sounds religious. I don't mean that climate crisis isn't real. It is very scientifically real, but it requires you to accept that and then to make fundamental changes to your life because of that acceptance. So it's not just, I know this. This is a thing that I believe in and is true, but to say, I believe in it and I'm going to let it totally change my priorities and what I choose to do, how I work, where I live, things mm -hmm. like that. And it's not for everyone. And also not everyone is in a position to do it. And she makes that allowance as well. But for individuals who, I think you and me, actually, like people like us who have steady incomes and are comfortable and who think a lot about what is happening in the world climate wise are there shifts that we're willing to make i mean if i really wanted to put my money where my mouth is at i would probably have to change industries i mean i'm a marketer basically i mean you could think about it yeah well i i, I think that in itself it's not that your skill set can only be served for the purpose of marketing product, right? She says that too. Yeah. I mean, there's big and small steps. Sure. On an extreme level, you could quit your job and try to start a farm 
in Taiwan and just eat food that you grow on your farm. But I think there's a lot of in-between things yeah. between that here and that that you can also choose to do. Yeah. That's it for me. Cool. Let's move on. All right. So my topic this week is a bit of a mashup between a few different Kanye West topics. But the original jumping off point was Kanye partnered with Kano to release a music device. Uh, and for those unfamiliar, Kano is this, I believe it's a learning hardware company that from what I understand, Kanye is also an investor in. So this product called the Donda Stem Player is essentially like a music device. And what it allows you to do is upon purchasing it, you get the full Donda album, which is his most recently released album. And you also get uh, the ability to split any song into stems. And I'm just reading the features list here. You can control vocals, drums, bass, and samples. You can isolate parts, add effects. There's four-channel lossless audio mixing, real-time loop and speed control, tactile effects. Uh, you can save, playback, and share mixes, customize colors. There's little light-up colors, uh, little lights. Uh, and then you can also update the content and software. That's a lot of things you can do. I think they're pretty general, I think, from the sounds of it. You know, it's just more like you would probably get to do that with any sort of device. You know, it's kind of like if you use Ableton or you use like Yeah, a, but it's like a separate device. Uh, I mean... I mean, I've never played with a device like that. If you're telling me that you don't need to hook it up to a computer or whatever, and you can just be on the street and listen to the Donna album and be remixing it. Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. I think it's really maybe, cool. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I don't know that this already existed, but I genuinely find it interesting that just the product itself exists for some reason i'm just thinking like i this is probably something that could have been an app for example and it wouldn't be that impressive as an app it would not be that impressive as an app it is more impressive as a standalone product but then an app is kind of a standalone product it's not a you know standalone I mean? physical product yeah yeah like it's a dedicated donda listening and remixing tangible item which yeah as a concept, I find pretty cool. Yeah. So I want to share this tweet from Blue Visual Sound. He said, I wouldn't buy this product, but the fact that Kanye took some simple features any DJR producer could use and put it out to the masses to use on their own is pretty impressive. It's a great product because the listener is interacting with the music as they listen to it. And I think this is actually really important because we had a little bit of a discussion in Discord around this product itself and how the ability for you to release this package is quite unique but i think that has the most impact because it's coming from kanye like sure. if if you were a much smaller artist this in itself like first you probably wouldn't even be able to execute on the hardware part because obviously tech hardware is quite hard but i think most importantly you wouldn't necessarily have the distribution to get people's attention this actually is part of a jumping off into several different things like you you listen to the album right yes i did and what was your sort of uneducated opinion? Because you probably I would say that. I told you off the air that I thought it was fine. I'm pretty sure I used the word fine or okay. But to confess, I listened to it while working. So I was not like particularly zoned in into what I was listening to. So I don't know. I have no strong impression. Yeah. Like I didn't hate it. I also didn't think like, oh, I love it. It was just what yeah. it was. We were talking to Jerry. Yes. Who works here at FMBG and is also a DJ. 
and his general sentiment was that it was not well produced per se. Like it wasn't consistently produced. It's probably a better word. Yeah. He said it wasn't consistently produced, but he also really, he had a positive feeling. Yeah. Towards the album. And we had a bit of a discussion. I don't know if this is the place for it or not about Kanye's Donda not being about the 24 tracks, but about holistically his process in making it, releasing it, the live streams, the STEM product. It's the listening parties. It's almost yeah. like performance art. Yeah. Is what I think of. It's not just music. Like it would mean so much less if you just isolated the 24 tracks by themselves. I don't ever go to musicals, do you? Have you ever been to like a musical? Like a show? Yeah. Yes, I've been to many actually. Yeah. So it's funny. We finally found a topic that we've never talked about on this podcast. Yeah. Weird so that came up so related to, to that point, I'm curious, like, does that apply in a musical setting where you just remove any sort of visualization of people acting, moving around the stage and just look at the audio and the sound? What is that experience like? And does this musical actually translate into what this whole Kanye experience, this Donda experience entails? Interesting question. I would say that I've never listened to a musical OST without having first watched. Wait, what's OST? Original oh. original soundtrack. Okay. okay. Sorry. So I've never listened to the musical OST without having first watched it, but I do listen to it after watching it. So in that case, I'd say analogous. Like I had to have that lived live experience or in some case like a rescreening before I was interested in the tracks by themselves no. but different because for musicals you don't have to be super invested in like the process or how it was staged i mean there is like a physicality I, to it i guess what i'm trying to get at is that because there are multiple variables being projected at you there's set design there's uh acting there's a lot of there's music there's singing that no individual part has to be perfect you know what I mean? Like it's all, all, it's a sum of all parts that represent your experience. So, which is why like in the, in my argument for Donda is that it doesn't really need to be a great album because there's so many other things that are creating value for it. Well, yes and no. I think what you're getting at here, which I agree with is that the first criteria for a musical to be good is a strong story. So you could have really excellent tracks, but if there's no story backing it up, then people aren't that into it. And so, yeah, there is some forgiveness if the songs themselves are not that good. But musical critics are uh, quite picky. And also the songs have to be very strong. Really, actually, who I think of in comparison to what Kanye seems to be doing now is genuinely performance artists like Marina Abramovic yeah. or Yoko Ono. Like that category yeah. of artist who... You will see live in scripted performances, also in sort of unscripted performances, and to really be on board with what they put out, you have to know so much more about the context, who they are, their values. That's that's what I think of, of like Kanye at this point in his career with Donda. Yeah. Did you want to say more about the STEM player, by the way? I know we've kind of gone on a different... Well, actually, I can go back to the stem player because I think the stem player was, for me, more of a jumping off point into the stem player was more of a physical representation of the philosophy behind the whole Donda experience. And that is the ability for you to kind of join in the experience 
and be part of it, right? So I actually wanted to pull two quotes from a John Karamanica piece for the New York Times. And this first quote, West though, fewer than you'd think. The more you listen for West on Donda, the less you really hear him. The more fragmentary the lyrics are, the less satisfying they are. And there's another quote, instead of focusing on Donda as an album or a playlist version of an album, it's helpful to think of it more like theater, an iterative affair that evolves a little each time you encounter it. In the last few weeks, it has gone from regional company to off-Broadway to the Great White Way. Each stop on that journey matters. And the way I interpret that is, and even with the STEM player, is that this is an experience that you guys can all live on your own terms. And you can integrate it into how you personally want to experience it. And that, that to me is like so indicative of where we are today in like the sort of 2020 way of building a brand where engagement and the ability to not really customize so much as have a say in how things are produced or shown. It just makes total sense. And it feels like a very different way because I think that in, in some ways when you look at I mean, some people like debatable, but some people would call like Kanye West a, a musical genius, right? In the sense that, you know, his impact on music, like some people. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's the operative word right now. Yeah. And in some ways, like artists at the highest level often are so precious to their vision. And what seems to change here is that the vision itself has become even more cerebral where the vision is for your involvement. Versus the past, like the vision is for you to consume what I create for you and you will love it. Mm-mm. One way versus multi-way, I guess, because yeah. he has many, many fans. So it's a lot of people responding like, to the work that he the puts way I would The way I would explain it is that most artist outputs are like creating a water slide where you create the water slide and the, the turns and the curves and the, the speed. Or even like a roller coaster, right? Sure. But, I'm waiting to see where you go in the second part of this. On the metaphor. flip side, what he's done is like he's basically created like a playground. And then within the playground, you can I interact see. with different sections. He went from building the roller coaster to building the yeah, theme park. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't know if this is a good place to mention this or not. But another reason why I think. Kanye is interesting right now is because it's not clear what about his actions is calculated as artistic expression and what is not. And I'm thinking in particular of two things. One is that in the third listening party, he brought out DaBaby and Marilyn Manson. Yeah, I was going to bring this up too, yeah. DaBaby has been under a lot of recent fire because he made homophobic comments yeah and marilyn manson is facing multiple allegations of sexual abuse which he denies Mm. according to bbc is what i'm reading from right now okay so we're not here to discuss you know the legality issues around those two artists because we're talking about kanye but i think what is interesting to me is his choice to include both of them together in the third listening party which feels very intentional but i don't know I mean, I don't know enough about all of it to say, what is he saying? Like, could it be that he is offering a critique? I guess is what I'm saying. But a lot of people are taking it at face value as in 
he approves of these two people. Yeah. I think that's the more, that seems to be the, the more obvious direct one. But I also think that it's, it's such a polarizing topic that it's going to be lost on most people. You know what I mean? Like, I think that most people won't necessarily have the creativity and I, I don't mean creative. I just think more like the, the nuanced understanding of what the deeper message is. I suppose what I'm trying to say is like, I'm not, I am not here to, you know, excuse baby and Marilyn Manson for anything so much as I'm interested in whether Kanye's choices have reasoning behind them that are deeper than what we get on a surface level. And the other thing I'm thinking of is actually that at the end of the third listening party, Kim Kardashian comes out wearing a Balenciaga wedding gown, which led to a lot of speculation. They got married with that same dress. Which led to a lot of speculation as to whether they're getting back together or whether the divorce filing has been canceled. And I mean, okay, I know I sound like TMZ, which I definitely kind of am sometimes. Wait, do you go on TMZ? I don't actually go on TMZ, but I know a lot of celebrity gossip. I'm not really sure why. What? How? I just happen to know. This is obviously not true. I clearly pay some amount of attention. Anyway, the point is, Kanye's tracks, so I've heard, I didn't look into all the lyrics, that a lot of them refer to Kim and refer to their relationship. And him bringing her out is performative, right? Like, it's not... It's not just his personal life anymore. When he brings her out on stage at a listening party for his album, that's integrated into whatever it is he's trying to say as an artist. And I'm also not trying to pass judgment and saying like, oh, it's like a this is like a great artistic statement or not. I just find it to be more interesting than just putting out 12 tracks, 24 tracks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the last thing that I want to cap off with is I find it incredibly interesting when the process is the product because I, I think process as product actually fulfills what we all sort of seek with product anyways, which is story. Like process in itself is letting you into the story much earlier and it also allows you to kind of grow and evolve with it and maybe even influence it. So the product here is Donda as a final album. The process was, you know, unveiled over the course of listening parties. It was even put into Discord servers like one of Kanye's collaborators, Mike Dean. He dropped a track for Hurricane into a Discord server and asked people for their feedback. Mm. Right. So I think that that in itself is already procedurally what you're doing, because I think that when you show the process, the output's quality matters less and less because I think you've already created an emotional bond and emotional resonance over the course of that development cycle. Oh, I agree. People are already with you. So they don't need the final product to be outstanding because they've been on this journey with you along the way. Yeah. I suppose this would be a good time to bring in some other music expert, but what is worth considering or looking for is whether this is becoming the way more music artists behave and the work that they're interested in doing. I have one kind of basic example, which is Little Nas X put out Montero, which is, did you watch the music video? It's him going down a stripper pole into hell and then he kills Satan, the devil. And then is this he, recent? 
not that recent. I have a point of this. And then yeah. you've also put out these Nike shoes, which you probably okay, did that hear I'm familiar about, with. which supposedly had a drop of his blood in it. Yeah. And there was this whole lawsuit, legal fiasco. Not because he used blood, but because Nike felt as though he was leveraging this custom shoe as an official Nike release, or people were confusing it as an official release potentially. Yes. And there was all this, there was real legal ramifications and also him joking that he was going to go to jail, like on Twitter, or like the possibility of it. And then the next track he put out, the MV, it's industry baby, the MV takes place in a prison. And what I think is interesting about this just conceptually is, I mean, I don't, I'm not clear on whether he wrote the song and changed the MV setting based off of real life events or not, or if that was already the plan. But it seems to me like the song came out of, you know, that real life yeah. experience or the trajectory of how things happened. Yeah. yeah. I'm so musically unsavvy that I, I just think that music in itself and, and putting out tracks requires a lot of creative thought, but maybe it doesn't. And I say that not to discount it, but like, for example, if you, Sharice, asked me, hey, go interview that person and create a story and take photos or, or shoot a video, like actually that creative process is quite similar because there's just a story that's coming out of the other side, but it's just different. One, one needs a beat, needs lyrics. The other one needs some other sort of similar aspect. I mean, different people are gifted in different exactly. ways. So. Yeah. So I don't doubt that, you know, you can be quite reactive to the music you put out and base it around an event. Change things on the fly. Yeah. Okay. That's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories, focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture. You can visit us at Macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.